2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, bring, uh, longing to be clothed instead in our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we shall not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, not because, uh, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we are grateful for your word. We pray that this morning you would impress these truths from your word on our minds, on our hearts. Help us to see life and our world through the lens of your truth revealed to us this morning through the Apostle Paul. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Do you remember the, the days of roadmaps? Now, I, I love my GPS. I use my GPS on every road trip. But I remember as a kid going on road trips, often from Florida to New York, New York to Michigan, uh, and the glove box would be stacked full with state roadmaps. Uh, until eventually we upgraded to, you know, the big Grand McNally Atlas that had all the states and the cutouts of the major cities. And it was exciting to, to get the maps out and plan your route. So if I was going to Cleveland, you know, <laughs> Cleveland. I'd pull out the map and I'd say, okay, I'm going to shoot up to Indy, hit 465, go over 70 till I get to Columbus, hit 271, and then 71 north, and I'm there. I'm golden, highlighted on the map, or a couple maps. And you always had to have an alternate route also, you know, okay, so I'm going to head over to Columbus. My plan is to hit 271. If I miss it, because, you know, the maps don't give you, you know, the two-mile warning, the 50-foot warning, here's your, so it was easy to miss exits. So if I miss 271, I'll just hit 71 and cost me an extra 15 minutes, no big deal. Uh, Knowing where you're going is important and knowing how you're going to get there is just as important. This morning, imagine the Apostle Paul and he's put out a map for himself. Well, actually for us. And he says, okay, y'all, this is where we're at. Uh, We're living in this earth, in this earthly tent. That's where we're at. And where we're going, our destination, our 
forever home. That's where I'm going. And I'm going to get me a brand new, glorious, heavenly, eternal body when I get there. Now there's two routes or routes, right, to get there. What Paul hopes is that he will be alive to hear the trumpet sound when Christ comes back and comes in the clouds and he will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and his body will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. He says, I'll put that new body right over top of this old body, this old dilapidated body. It'll be swallowed up by immortality, by life. That's what he hopes will happen. But he's planning a detour also. He recognizes that he might take a detour through the grave. That's a good detour though. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So that's good. If I, if I take that detour, Paul's thinking, called death, I'll enter into my rest and will eventually be caught up in the resurrection to meet the Lord in the sky and receive my resurrection glorious forever body then. Two different routes. Whatever path to glory the believer takes, their future is certain and beautiful and should give the believer courage and confidence. I want to pause for a minute and just appreciate that graphic because that took me way more time this week than it should have. Way more. So, thank you. We're just going to leave that right there because we're going to walk through each one of those steps because that's what the Apostle Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. First, start with the here and the now. And he says, we are now living in this earthly tent. Why tent? This week, why does he use that metaphor of a tent? This week in the hallway, several of us staff members got in a conversation about the merits of tent camping. And some people on staff are are big into tent camping and they love it. Others, not so much. We prefer hotels. Now, when we talk about tent camping, we're not talking about living in a tent, right? It's a long weekend. It's a mini vacation. We don't live in tents. And honestly, either did the people in Corinth. Corinth was a big metropolis. It had baths and temples and synagogues and, I think, libraries and and houses. People lived in houses. You know who lived in tents? Roman soldiers who were on campaign. Shepherds who were out in the fields. Travelers who might have arrived at the port of Corinth but were traveling on foot to another port. Or sailors whose ship was ported in Corinth. In Corinth, Paul was a tent maker, but it wasn't as though people were living in tents. All those situations, people used tents, but temporarily. It wasn't their permanent address. They had homes. Tents were impermanent, temporary, 
You know who did live in tents? Israel. In the years of sojourn, of wandering in the desert. When they hadn't entered yet the promised land. Paul's using this image of living in an earthly tent to remind us that this life is a sojourn. It is not our permanent home. Not our fixed address. We're pilgrims here, sojourning. Even God, in this time, lived in a tent, the tabernacle, before his permanent temple was built. So this isn't permanent, this earthly life, this body, this tent. And in verse 2 he says, in this earthly tent we groan. We groan for our eternal home. We long for it. In verse 4, he comes back to that and he says, We groan because we're burdened. Now pause here for a second because I think Paul could be really misunderstood. Paul is not saying we groan because our souls are in this prison house of a body. Not saying that. He's not saying we groan because our spirit is encased in the material. He's not saying that. Matter of fact, he says we're not groaning to be unclothed from the body, but to put on our permanent immortal body over this so that it will be swallowed up in life. He longs to be further clothed with the resurrection body. But now, this life is marked by transience, temporariness, and groaning. And so we're not to be fixated on this earthly tent, but be captured by a vision of the eternal, our forever home. So the second station there should Fill our vision. Our eternal destination is our forever home. But what does Paul mean when he refers to the building of God, the eternal, that is eternal in the heavens, not made with human hands? What is he referring to there? It could be that he's referring to our mansions in heaven or or rooms in God's house, our, our heavenly abode. That is a great truth that Jesus taught, right? In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would tell you. But I go to prepare a place for you. That is a great truth, but I don't think it's the truth that Paul has in mind here. He's pointing to our resurrection bodies, our eternal homes. He's contrasting the temporariness of this flesh of this body and contrasting it with the permanence, with the eternality of our resurrection bodies. He's drawing a parallel between the earthly body and the heavenly resurrected body. And these are the words Jesus used to describe his resurrection body. In Mark chapter 14, at Jesus' trial, Some witnesses come forward and say, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with a human hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with human hands. 
They thought he was talking about the temple in Jerusalem, but he was saying, no, my body, this temple will be destroyed and I will raise it up. The parallel that Paul is drawing is between the earthly tent, this body, and our heavenly, eternal, glorified resurrection body. And here you see the already not yet tension beginning to play out in Paul's language. Because in verse 1, he says in the present tense, we have this body. We have this eternal home. But he's also said that he's living in this earthly tent. How can he be in possession already have the eternal home? It's because it is so secure, so certain. We can, be, we can speak as though we are already in possession of it. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, we certainly, those who are in him, will also. And in verse 5, he talks about the Spirit as the guarantee of this resurrection body. Guarantee, again, implies you haven't fully received it yet. Not yet. But you already have the guarantee, and this guarantee is the Spirit. So certainly you will receive this resurrection body, those of you who are in Christ. Paul goes even further, talking about this heavenly, resurrected, glorified building, body. He says, God himself is the one who prepared you for this. Eternal life, resurrection life, isn't just a bonus round for Christians. It's the reason God created us. That's our goal. So how do we get from where we are to where we're going? Again, Paul's preferred route was that he would be alive when Christ returns. And to go from this body directly into that eternal body in the twinkling of an eye. He prefers not to be, in his language, found naked. Which is his language for the disembodied soul. But to be completely clothed in an instant with the immortal body. What he hopes for is the process what the theologians refer to sometimes as translation. Being caught up and transformed into the new resurrection body in the twinkling of an eye. My grandma uh, passed away in 2021. Um, over the past, the last couple decades of her life, I didn't talk to my grandma probably as much as I ought to have, but virtually every conversation I had with her, she spoke of hoping, longing for Christ's return. It was beautiful. It was on her mind constantly, this longing, this hoping for Christ's returns, when she would be cut up to meet her Savior in the air and be transformed into her new heavenly body. That's what Paul is hoping for. But he wants to make clear, here and elsewhere, that those who do die and go to the grave are at no disadvantage. He makes that point in 1 Thessalonians and here. 
Because to die is to be in the presence of the Lord. It's a detour. It's a detour that, honestly, most of us will probably take. Should the Lord tarry. That's the way most of us will come into the presence of the Lord. But verse 8 reminds us that to be absent from this body is to be in the presence of the Lord. And Paul says, I'd rather, I'd rather shed this earthly tent because in doing so, that means I will be in the presence of the Lord. In Philippians 1, he says it incredibly strongly. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. There's a longing to be with the Lord. But Paul refers to this state of the body being in the ground and the soul being with the Lord in heaven as nakedness, as being unclothed. And it isn't our final goal. Uh, Paul here is low-key, like going after Plato. Uh, Plato envisioned the goal as escape from the material. Uh, the body was the prison house of the soul. And in Corinth and Athens, Plato and Neoplatonism had, that was the philosophy of the day. And it had come into the church in a heresy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a prevalent heresy in the early church and one that just hasn't gone away. Gnosticism taught a, a radical dualism that the spirit was good, but material things were evil. The body, this material world, made by a, a lesser God. And so the goal was to escape from the material, from the body. And the way to do that is to come into possession of the gnosis, some secret knowledge. That's not Paul. Paul. Paul's not saying our goal is to escape from this meat envelope. Nope. The goal is resurrection. We may, we may die, this body, and our souls go to be in the presence of the Lord. And that is good, but that is penultimate. My grandpa died in 1992. He, in the last years of his life, struggled with emphysema and ALS and was in and out of the hospital. At the very end, he talked about seeing the garden and how beautiful it was. He also looked at my cousin one time and said, you're next. But, uh, you know, that was disconcerting to us all. Uh, we, don't, we don't talk about that too much. Um, I know my grandpa went to be with the Lord. I know my grandma went to be with the Lord. I know my dad, when he passed away in 2018, after years of faithful service in a Christian life, that it went to be with the Lord. 
And that is not the ultimate goal. Paul says that's a detour, that's a way station, a rest stop, if you will, on our journey to eternal life in resurrected bodies. That is the ultimate. So that's Paul's map. Paul's map to eternity and to the goal of resurrection life. What happens when we lay Paul's map on our reality? What does it demand of us? What does it require of us? I have three things here. Application. First, it calls us to embrace the embodied nature of the Christian hope and reject all paths to human flourishing that neglect the whole human. Christianity is embodied from beginning to end. We were created by our good God in the flesh, and he called it good. And we have been saved by a God who took on flesh, our flesh, and redeemed it. And our ultimate salvation comes not in the shedding of our flesh, but in the resurrection of our flesh to immortality. Christianity is embodied from beginning to middle to end. So we resist philosophies that minimize the embodied nature of self. N.T. Wright, who is probably rivaling C.S. Lewis now, is the most quoted theologian in our church. N.T. Wright has said that ancient Gnosticism is the controlling myth of our age. Ancient Gnosticism is the controlling myth of our age. We see it in our broader culture as we strive to transcend the limits of the physical, to set aside the external and see those things as the key to human flourishing. The modern gnosis that is key for salvation. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. The modern knowledge that is key for salvation is finding your true self. The inner self. Unlocking salvation by looking within. And this shows up in so many different ways. Let me give you a few examples. The first, from the realm of the bizarre. In movements called therianthropy, other kin, transspeciesism, or the furry lifestyle. If you don't know what the furry lifestyle is, ask a high school student. Where the inner person, the inner self, is deemed to be not human. Elf, alien, Dragon, wolf, cat. And this inner self is the real self that needs to be expressed. Move on from the bazaar to the big tech industry. Where billions of dollars are being spent pursuing the dreams of transhumanism. Escaping the limits of the body. We can escape the limits of the body through virtual reality. 
Again, billions of dollars are being thrown into virtual reality technology and things called haptics that will make it not just visually and auditorily real, but sensorially, might have just made that word up, real. You'll feel the cold breeze, feel the warmth sun, and we will increasingly be tempted to retreat into virtual worlds, escaping the limits of our body. If you want a pop culture expression of that, read the book, watch the movie, Ready Player One, where the grim, bleak, exterior world, people are just retreating from it to a virtual reality called the Oasis, and they live there. Or even more radical is the quest for immortality by trying to upload self into digital mainframes or mechanical versions of self. And again, if you want a pop expression of this, watch the TV series Upload. Or if you're a Marvel nerd like me, Dr. Zola in the Marvel Universe. From the bizarre to big tech to the realm of sexuality and gender. Again, Bishop N.T. Wright. He says, The confusion about gender identity is a modern and now internet-fueled form of the ancient philosophy of Gnosticism. The Gnostic who knows has discovered the secret of who I really am behind the deceptive outward appearance This involves denying the goodness or even the ultimate reality of the natural world. Glenn Harrison, a psychiatrist and a professor at the University of Bristol, agrees. And he says, in the Gnostic worldview, the material world is essentially evil. As a result, the so-called natural distinctions of the world, for example, the difference between male or female, or the notion of there being a natural order to human sexual relations are at best illusionary and at worst corrupt deceptions. All that belongs to the outer world of society and religion, indeed the outer world of your own body, it's all irrelevant and deceptive. Maybe some more mundane examples of how Gnostic philosophy is the air that we breathe but must resist. Marriage. Marriage isn't helping you flourish and become the best version of you. Well, set it aside. Go on a quest to find you. This is the philosophy behind the book, Eat and Movie, Eat, Pray, Love, where the heroine of the story goes on a quest to find God, find herself, and, you know, just sets aside that pesky husband because he's an encumbrance. And in her own words, she finds that God dwells within me, as me, she says. How beautifully Gnostic that is. Or why get married at all? The external objective institution of marriage pales in comparison to the inner reality of love. So set it aside. 
or in ethics. How many times do we hear the phrase in a week, oh, but deep down he's a good boy or a good man. But he's a bully and he tortures puppies. Oh, but deep down, you know, really deep down, he's a good man. Set aside the external behaviors and look only at the interior. And it's in the church too. In churches where the entire focus is on saving souls and not feeding the hungry, not healing the broken, not caring for justice, not caring for bodies. Or in our worship, when we worship God in spirit, but set aside truth because, you know, external things like creeds and confessions and sacraments and even the church are unnecessary. It's just me and Jesus, my heart and him. doesn't even matter if my exterior life matches what I believe or sing. Just the emotions, my interior life and God. And that's Gnosticism. I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned with saving souls. We should. But not just souls. We are full human beings. Called to engage and minister to full human beings. And I'm not saying that Christians necessarily need to stay in every bad marriage. But we set those aside With fear and trepidation. And I'm not against big tech. I'm as addicted to my phone as most of you, I think. And I'm certainly not trying to minimize the struggle of those who experience gender dysphoria. The church ought to engage the LBGTQ plus community with love and compassion and truth. Because we hold these two things together, body and soul. Christianity is very much an embodied religion, not merely a private spirituality. We have to embrace that. Second, there's an important reminder to live this life and remember that it's temporary. We are on a sojourn. Don't get fixated by this life. To steal Lewis, I was feeling bad. I quoted right twice. To quote Lewis, don't get fixated with the mud pies. Prepare for the vacation at the sea. Oh, we're half-hearted creatures, he said. We get so easily distracted by food, sex, and ambition. We don't even comprehend the wonders of a vacation by the sea. Don't get so enamored with the things of this life, this earthly tent existence, that you neglect the realities of eternity and heaven. Paul in verse 10 reminds us that we will stand before the judgment seat of God to receive what is due for our good and our bad. We do not need to fear punishment or judgment on that day because we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. But there is rewards to be had for good deeds, for living to please God. Lean into that. Resolve to store up treasure for yourself in heaven, in eternity, where moth and rust cannot destroy. 
A couple weeks ago, I quoted from a Puritan pastor who made a series of resolutions. One of his resolutions was to think about death often. Another one, he says, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, and yes, even vehemence and violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert. Pursue eternal happiness. The third and last thing is to foster a longing for the eternal. Foster a longing for life with the Lord. Do you long for heaven? Do you groan for the eternal? Paul did. And his expectation is that we should also. So do you long for it? Let me answer for you. It's presumptuous. But not as much as you should. So how do we foster it? Well, how much do you think of heaven? That's an ambiguous question. It could be how often do you think of it or how much, how grand is your thoughts of heaven? And I want to ask both. How often do you think of heaven? Make it a a daily part of your meditation to think about heaven, to think about the eternal, to think about our future resurrection life with the Lord, and be entranced by that vision. Which leads to the second part of that question, how grand is your vision of the eternal? If your vision of the eternal is simply a copy of the earthly, but without the inconveniences of the achy back, the bratty kids, the empty bank account, if that's your vision of the eternal... It is woefully, woefully wanting. Upgrade your vision of what the eternal means. Remind yourself that the eternal, that resurrection life is about life with God. In 1996, just after graduating from college, I went to visit my parents in Fiji, And I spent six weeks there, and Fiji is incredible. I didn't want to be there. My heart was back in the U.S. I I was doing my duty of visiting my parents in Fiji. I Suffering, you know. I wanted to be back in the States, particularly Erie, Pennsylvania. Why? Because that's where Lynn was. That's how much I loved Lynn. I shouldn't have said that in the past tense. That's how much I love Lynn. I was in Fiji. But we weren't even husband and wife yet. We weren't engaged yet. We were just dating. And I wanted to figure it out. Where are we going? My heart was in Erie, Pennsylvania. Because that's where the one I loved is. Where's the one you love? In heaven, he's bringing you home, one way or another. Make that your longing, and live in light of that longing. Will you pray with me? 
Father, I am so grateful. I'm grateful for the good things that you've given to me in my life. And I'm grateful to know that you have so much more in store. Not just escape from this body, but resurrection life with you. Father, I pray that you'd give me the courage, the boldness. I pray that you'd give us the courage and the boldness to live in light of that every day, storing up for ourselves treasure in heaven. We look forward to being with you there. In Jesus' precious name, amen.